All right, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with each other in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you are called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens, in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Thanks, Ben. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you that it's been written for us and to show us how we live lives that honour Jesus. So we pray, help us this morning uh, to conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. Amen. Can I ask you please to take out the leaflet that you're given as you came in? You'll see on the inside a reasonably detailed outline and on the bottom right you'll notice there's a couple of discussion questions I'll get us to finish with this morning. Uh, And you'll also have spotted those memory verse cards that Stephen referred to before. If you can see one of those, that would be great. We'll come back to that a bit later as well. Well, as you know, last week we spent some time thinking about the particular topic of predestination. This week we're back, you could say, to our bread and butter of just making our way through verse by verse of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, We've actually reached, finally, the turning point in the letter. If you look at the diagram on the left-hand side at the top there, it's a reminder that Ephesians is divided into two main parts. The first half, chapters 1 through 3, uh, describe in extravagant detail a God who is rich in mercy, but the second half show us, therefore, how that shapes the way in which we are to live. And this is what I've called the God who prepared good works in advance for us to do. Uh, as we turn the corner, therefore, from focusing on what God is like to how we live, our very great danger is legalism. Um, of us starting to think that actually what the Bible says is that our status before God depends on what we do. I want to say that if we start treading down that pathway, um, either we'll become proud uh, if we're doing well, uh, or more likely we'll despair when we stumble, as we all do. Um, What's more, we'll never succeed. Because if we could, as Paul says elsewhere, Christ died for nothing. 
And that means that, therefore, in the second half of the letter, uh, we'll need constant reminders of the sweet delights of God's grace every single week. In fact, to be honest, the best way to remind you of that is just to read chapters 1 through 3 at the start of every sermon and then go to chapter 4, but that will take a bit long. So, what we're going to do each time is focus, I guess, not just on how we live at the moment, but equally on what our God, who is rich in mercy, is always like. And you'll see there that today, four brief points that I want us to work our way through fairly quickly through the first two. Uh, Point one, live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Uh, Fortunately, Paul actually starts the second half of the letter with a timely reminder of God's grace. He says the reason we're to live the way in which we do is not because we're trying to appease God in any way, it's simply because we long to please Him with all of our lives. Now look at verse 1, chapter 4 verse 1, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Uh, why would you do so? Why would you want to live a life worthy of the, call, worthy of the calling that we've received? Well, you do it because of your confident of the relationship that you're already in. You're not uncertain or hesitant about it. You're not sure if you've ever done enough to keep the person's favour. No, it's the exact opposite. A conviction that the God who is rich in mercy has been so good to us, that's what shapes the way in which we live. And you see how profoundly Paul has been shaped and motivated by God's grace that, verse 1, he's even prepared to go to prison if that's where Christ will have him. Well, what do you think it looks like if a whole church is committed to living that way, to living a life worthy of the calling that we've received? Well, the rest of the passage gives three particular descriptions. They are about unity, diversity and maturity. Unity, diversity and maturity. And that corresponds to points two, three and four. So firstly, point two, unity. Pick it up with me in verses two and three. Be completely humble and gentle be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Uh, isn't it interesting how Paul's first instructions to us about how we live a life worthy of the calling that we've received, his very first instructions are all about our character. Verse 2, be completely humble, be gentle, bear with one another in love. And why? Well, if we're all doing so, verse 3, it means that we'll keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Even before he gets to how we are to live, Paul starts with the kind of people we are to be. Look at each of those three characteristics. Completely humble. Be completely humble. Uh, That's because nothing destroys unity quite like pride. Of thinking that I'm better than everyone else, or at least that I'm right and everyone else is wrong. Or to be gentle. If we must rebuke uh, or correct, and sometimes that's necessary, Paul's reminding us that what we long for is winning the person, not winning an argument. The same is true in reverse. If we're the ones being rebuked, well, to be gentle means to not lash out in response. Or the third description there, to be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. I take it this is important because when we're offended by others, not if, when we're offended by others, or even when others just do things differently from the way in which we'd prefer, 
Being patient at least means not assuming the worst possible motive. And you notice all three characteristics of God's people that Paul describes here, they're all about how we relate to each other. Uh, remember, this letter to the Ephesians is written not to an individual, it's written to a whole church. And the goal or the big idea, or you can't miss it, it's that God's people are meant to be completely united in every way. Pick it up in verse 4. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The goal is to be united as one. Although it's really important to notice that this is a unity that's in the gospel. It's a unity that's in the gospel. In fact, if you drop your eyes down to verse 13, uh, Paul talks there about unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Um, can I say as an aside, that's the reason why we don't seek unity with all so-called Christians, not if it's a unity that's not in Jesus as the Son of God. Well, let me just say something very briefly about application before we move on. Um, without meaning to sound like a pessimist, what Paul describes here sounds pretty hard, doesn't it? To be completely humble and gentle, to be patient and bearing with everyone in love. Uh, in fact, when he goes on to say in verse 3, make every effort, uh, I think he's saying that because he knows how hard it is, in fact, that we won't always succeed. So why don't we give up? Well, the answer is from verse 1. Because this is the calling that we have received. What helps us to persevere and to persevere, to even persevere and persist, even when it's hard, is the wonderful delight of knowing that we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works He has prepared in advance for us to do. Unity in the faith, this is what God has made us to do, because this is what He has made us to be as His people. And yet, despite all that, our good intentions, even godly character, sometimes they won't be enough. Not if it's left up to us. And so we come to point three on your handout, near the bottom on the left. Thankfully, point three, Christ gives gifts to equip His people for works of service. Verse seven. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it. You know, it is hard to keep the unity of the Spirit, but thankfully, Christ gives gifts to help us. Literally, verse 7 says, to each of us, grace has been given as a measure of Christ's gift. What's really interesting is that Paul is going to go on to say that he gives different gifts to help us keep the unity of the Spirit. And so, whereas the first part of this passage was all about our need for unity, the second part emphasises the diversity of God's people. Uh, or to put it slightly differently, as I said there on your handout, unity is not the same thing as uniformity. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity in God's people, uh, even though, to be honest, uh, it's much more complicated. Well, what about these gifts? Pick it up in verses 8 through 10. Verse 8, this is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? 
He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Uh, Paul here is quoting Psalm 68, verse 18. I've given you the reference there. You can look it up afterwards if you'd like. What he's doing, I think, is he's evoking the image of a victorious conquering king who's defeated his enemies and has returned home. And as he does, blessings are showered on all of his subjects. I think the point that Paul is making is that if the victory that Christ has won is nothing less than resurrection from the dead, that's what we saw in chapter 2, then surely all of us want to know about the gifts that He is going to be showering on us. Well, let's see what they are. Uh, Verses 11 through 13, I'm going to read this section out, and then you'll see the three questions that I'd like us to just quickly answer. What are the gifts which Christ gives? What's the purpose of those gifts? And then on the next side of the handout, what's the goal of those works of service? Verse 11, Ephesians chapter 4. So Christ Himself gave the apostles, the prophets the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Well, firstly then, what are the gifts which Christ gives? Well, verse 11, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers. Despite what we normally think, the gifts that Christ gives are not individual talents or abilities that are bestowed on individual people. That's not what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 4. The gifts that Christ gives, Paul says, are people themselves. And he lists five types, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, all of which I think is a broad way of describing those who teach God's Word to God's people. Uh, We'll see more on that in a moment. Well, secondly then, what's the purpose of those gifts? Uh, Why does Christ give apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers? Well, the answer, verse 12, to equip His people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. To equip His people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. I'll take a few minutes here just to say that this is critical for understanding the shape of ministry in our church. You see, in our church, it's not that the staff do all the work, but rather that they equip God's people for works of service. Uh, It's true that if you look, for example, at our church budget, 85% of our budget is spent on staff wages. And it's, uh, it's there to release our staff from working a day jobs, but not so that they can do all the ministry, but to equip all of us for the works of service which God has prepared in advance for all of us to do, so that the whole body of Christ might be built up. As always, John Stott puts it so elegantly. You'll see the quote at the bottom of the page there. The New Testament envisages ministry not as the prerogative of a clerical elite, but as the privileged calling of all the people of God. Not the prerogative of a clerical elite, but the privileged calling of all the people of God. Can I say the staff really do believe this? We are so thankful that we have one of the best jobs in the world, 
we thank God constantly for your generosity in setting us aside to do it. But the role of the staff, our privilege, is to equip you to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received as people who are God's handiwork. Now, that means, of course, that the staff need to lead by example. They need to be humble and gentle and patient and joyful. But it's all for the purpose of building up the whole body of Christ. To use a couple of images, church leadership, it's not like a pyramid with the staff at the top. A church leadership is, well, it's not like we're in a bus with the staff in the driver's seat and everyone else just passengers along for the ride. Rather, church leadership, and I apologise for the sporting analogy, but it is finals time, the staff are like the coach or the coaches of the team, preparing the players to run out on the field and actually get into the action. Well, thirdly then, what's the goal of those works of service on the right-hand side of your handout? Pick it up again in verse 12. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and unity in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Paul actually has three different parallel descriptions of a built-up body of Christ. He talks about unity in the faith, unity in the knowledge of the Son of God, and thirdly, becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Uh, Unity in the faith, unity in the knowledge of the Son of God, well, they remind us of what we've already seen in this chapter. But they also remind us of Paul's prayers, back in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, that we might know God better and know Christ's love better. Actually, I take it that's the reason why the five gifts that Christ gives His church, they are all what you might call word gifts. Word gifts. Because only the Word of God can transform us and motivate us and show us how to do those works of service. And only the Word of God can protect us from the false teachers whom we know from experience are around. And we'll come back to that in the last section. The other image that Paul talks about is of maturity. It's the picture of growing up, of not being a child, but being a solid, stable, steadfast adult who's unwavering. And that image is going to be teased out in the last part as well. Uh, Well, can I say that I know that one of the things that we love in our church is to hear stories of the lost turning to Christ, of people coming to Jesus for the first time. Those are terrific things for us to hear, but I want to add, conversion is not the ultimate goal. Maturity in Christ is. Because in the end, what matters is not so much how we start off in the Christian life, but rather seeing people become mature. Seeing people attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, what matters ultimately is seeing people make it home again. No wonder Paul will urge us in other places to run in such a way that we might win the prize. And that's one of the reasons why we've been doing Ephesians this term. 
Part of the reason is because last year I read through Ephesians um, one-to-one with um, a new believer as he turned to Christ. And it was just wonderful to see him take those first steps uh, to walk alongside a new brother in our church family. But it's just as important for those of us who have followed Jesus all our lives and to perhaps need a reminder of how far we've come, how far He has brought us, how much our Father has blessed us in the heavenly realms to fuel us for what lies ahead. I guess you could say the reason why we're doing Ephesians is that I didn't want anyone to miss out. And you see a little bit of that in verse 13. Did you notice verse 13? Until we all reach unity in the faith. We all reach unity in the faith. Paul is urging us to make sure that no one is left behind. And I tell you, you can see therefore why this is this week's memory verse, uh, verses 11 through 13. Now, yes, it is long. Sorry about that. Um, But I picked it because this is a picture of what God's church and family is meant to be. And though we're not there yet, one day we will be. Well, again, a brief comment about application. Um, What are the works of service that you might do to build up the body of Christ? What are the works of service that you might do to build up the body of Christ? It's actually the discussion question we'll come back to at the end. But for now, I just want to acknowledge all of us play different roles in the building up of God's people. I thought about this this week as I was preparing this talk. Um, This week, I spent much of this week immersed in God's Word on our behalf, preparing to preach and to teach and to pastor us. That was the particular role that I had this week. But as I was doing so, I thought about the fact that, um, well, actually at 6.30 this morning, David from our 9am congregation came in to clean up the site after the excesses of Saturday night on Hindley Street and to make sure that we could meet here safely. And I thought about Andrew, who's currently on the sound desk and has been here since 7.30, to make sure that you can actually hear anything that I have to say. I thought about Brian and Heather, who during the week came in and photocopied and folded close to a thousand leaflets so that you'd have a sermon outline in front of you. And I think about the fact that after our 9am gathering this morning, um, Heather, um, Alison served coffee and tea, as she does every week, so that people would have a chance to be able to debrief what they had heard and think about how the Word of God applies to us. And the thing is, none is any better or before the other in the body of Christ. Because, as we're just about to see, He is the head. So point four then, speaking the truth in love, verses 14 through 16. If the first part of the passage was all about our unity and the second part was all about our diversity, the final part develops this idea of maturity in God's people. Now, the reason it matters, of course, is not just because of this high and lofty aspirational goal we have for the body of Christ to be built up, it matters also because of the dangers that are lurking out there. So pick it up with me in verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants, 
tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful schemes. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Paul is honest and realistic in his letter to the Ephesians. There are threats. There are threats to God's people. Some of them are external. So, for example, Paul is in prison. But some are, you might say, more internal, false teachers. They are real. There are cunning and crafty people with deceitful schemes. And Paul uses two graphic images for the damage that false teachers can cause. He speaks of infants who aren't yet mature, the ones who are most vulnerable... He speaks of infants being tossed around in the surf or being buffeted in a gale-force wind. And yet, Paul has already laid the platform for the antidote. It's here in chapter 4. It's a reminder that we are not alone in the body of Christ. Think, if you will, of how hard it is to survive treading water or against a gale-force wind if you are on your own. And so Paul's third image in this section emphasises the importance of togetherness. He says we are part of a body. It's not just a whole body, verse 16, it's a mature body, a grown-up body, verse 15. It's a lovely picture of every part of the body being knit together and joined together in love because... Quite frankly, it's no good if some part of the body have some parts of the body have grown, but other parts haven't fully developed. Paul's point is that all of us need each other if we are to mature. All of us need each other if the whole body is to mature. And so no one should be left behind. Because if one part suffers, We all suffer. We are all in this together. It's a different type of together, isn't it? Uh, This is a very real and deep and intimate type of together. Uh, Here's an example to show you what this looks like. Uh, You'll see on the screen behind me a picture. Um, This year, the staff here at uh, Trinity... There's a picture on the screen, I think. Yes. Maybe. Well, I'll tell you about what the picture was going to be. Ah, here it is. It's a picture of the corporate cup. Now, some of you know about the corporate cup. This is the thing that encourages people who work in the city to get out and run and be healthy, all that kind of nonsense. And um, tells you what I think about the corporate cup. We entered a team this year. You can see on the left-hand side, you see the four young and fast ones. And then on the right-hand side, you see the rest of us. Um, uh, It turns out, actually, that on our team... We have very different ideas about what together means when it comes to running. Uh, One person on our team said to me, and I won't tell you her name, but it's not Melissa. Um, One person on our team said, I have absolutely no intention of sweating alongside my colleagues. The kind of together that Ephesians 4 describes is not like the Trinity City staff team in the corporate cup. It's not that kind of together. It's the kind of together that assumes that we're involved in each other's lives if we are to be a whole body 
and more importantly, a mature body. Because in Ephesians 4, I need you and you need me. And all of us need each other if we are to grow up as the body of Christ. We can't do this on our own. Now, if that sounds hard and daunting, then what gives us confidence is the reminder of who the head of our whole body is. You notice verse 15? It's Christ. And that's the most enormous relief, I think. It's the most enormous relief because the one who gave gifts in the first place hasn't abandoned us. He is sticking around, he is with us, because the only way in which we will attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ is by him being in charge right now and every day. Not me, not any pastor, thankfully. It's Christ who is in charge. So, let me just finish with a couple of point, comments about application here. Uh, the first is, and this is a serious thing for me to say, but I want to say it so that you know that this is something that as a church, it is important to us. Because of the damage that can be caused when leaders go astray, as a church, we take the life and doctrine of our leaders very seriously. Uh, you'll see there, there's a reference to um, our website, where if you have any concerns about the conduct of any of our leaders, whether staff or senior lay leaders, there is a process that you can follow through that will enable you to be able to express those concerns and ensure that they are properly and transparently addressed. A slightly different way of me highlighting this point. Um, now, as you know, each week I've been recommending books to read. Someone said to me after last week, can you please stop recommending books because it's costing me too much money. So this week I'm giving you a podcast. You don't have to pay anything for this one. Um, the podcast is from Christianity Today. Some of you will have seen this. It's actually a terribly tragic podcast. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's a story of a church that, quite frankly, was destroyed by leadership. Um, it's a serious thing for us to consider. In fact, when the staff go away in a few weeks' time, we're going to listen to a couple of episodes because I want us to be able to reflect and to pray about these things. So I do need to acknowledge that as we think about application. Here's the other thing that I want to say, though, and you'll see the question there printed there, in that little box. Do you need encouragement to speak the truth? Or do you need encouragement to speak the truth in love? Understand the question that I'm asking you here. To put it slightly differently, I guess I'm asking, are you the kind of person who is likely to throw a so-called truth bomb at the first possible opportunity? Well, these days, uh, probably you're not. Um, given how quickly we know people are ostracised when they speak up. Actually, it's far more tempting to stay silent and to keep quiet. Yet I want to say it is deeply unloving to withhold truth from people. We know from our own experience, just over the last few years throughout the pandemic, we know how we feel about those who conceal information for us or who spread misinformation or lies, false teachers. So how much more so is it unloving to keep quiet when it comes to knowledge of the Son of God? People's eternal salvation is at stake. And sadly, there are cunning and crafty people with deceitful schemes out there. At the same time, if you happen to be the kind of person who is always spoiling for a theological fight, 
who happens to throw that truth bomb at the first sign of disunity, uh, particularly if you're feeling threatened or attacked, can I please remind you, people hear tone of voice before they're even willing to consider your content. So if you have not love in your words, you are no more than a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And no one will listen, even as you hold out the word of life. I wonder if you can imagine a situation where you have something hard to say to someone about their faith or their knowledge of Jesus. Actually, this might be a very live scenario for you right now. There are times where I've had to deal with both situations, both temptations, to be honest, as a pastor and as a teacher. The challenge of love, even while speaking truth. As you know, I spent close to two decades on campus working with university students. And I must say there were times when an 18-year-old undergraduate atheist thought that he knew better than me simply because he'd read a few, word, few articles on the internet. It's pretty tempting to write him off and to dismiss him out of hand, to not be completely humble and gentle and patient. And yet, this is someone for whom Christ died, whom he loved enough to lay down his life. But the other, the other situation just as hard, to not stand up for the whole truth. I can think of a time pleading with a young man not to walk away from Christ because of the sacrifices God's people must make to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. The cost of following Jesus is very high. If the one we follow went to his death, we must be prepared to do the same. And it can be tempting to downplay that cost of discipleship instead of gently and patiently declaring the truth with great compassion and love that nothing compares to knowing Jesus and becoming mature in Christ and attaining to the whole measure of all the fullness of Him. How wonderful it would be if we were known throughout Adelaide as the church which always speaks the truth about Jesus in love. 